Hello, Henrietta. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the conversations with Jason Campbell and Henrietta Galena. Um, Henrietta, we are we're still wading through this COVID situation. It looks like the end is near, but um, we're not fully here yet, are we? According to the New York Times, we are not. We're not. So, okay. yes, we well, have some ways to go. Well, we've both been trapped in this city for some for some months now, but I'm happy to say that I'm finally able to leave. I'll be leaving today uh, to upstate New York, and I'm looking forward to some nature and just like changing the air, I have to tell you. I'm really excited for you, Jason. I am staying here. I will be here. So well, <laughs> I suggest you take a, you know, you take a long weekend to the countryside. I think it will do all super well. Let's hope so. Let's hope we can make that happen. And and on this theme of wellness, I'm not sure if this is the best segue, but on this theme of wellness, we're, we're going to go into the guest that we have this week. We have a guest. Her name is Maury Fontanez. Hello, Maury. Hi, Jason. Hi, Henrietta. Hi, Maury. How are you? I am great. It's so nice to talk to you both this morning. Thank you so, so you. much for joining for joining us this morning, um, Maury. Um, I'm a I'm a huge fan of Maury's, but I have <laughs> to let's let's first contextualize this Maury situation. Maury, uh, for I've been calling you. The Olivia uh, and Olivia Pope, literally <laughs> Olivia Pope, the scandal character that is a woman who fixes all things in Washington D.C. and beyond. You go into those <laughs> corporate offices, you go into the you know you know the politicians' room, and and you 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 fix things. You fix things when things go uh, go awry. But that's not really a fair assessment of your work. And surely in this age, I think this kind of work takes on a different scope. So mm. I please define for us what your what your work profile is. Absolutely. And I love that comparison because I love that show and I love her. But um, <laughs> yeah, I would say that it's different only because, you know, I, I spent 20 years of my career in PR and uh, crisis management, change management and strategy. And I actually left to start my own uh, consultancy called 822 Group because I was really tired of just fixing things at a surface level. And what I saw in organizations and in leaders was a true inner chaos that was causing external crises. And what I mean by that is anytime either as individuals or as organizations, we see that we're facing a crisis, there's actually something that's been going on long before inside of us um, that I call chaos and that's inevitable um, that really is creating the most fertile ground for that crisis to grow and develop. And so I felt like it was really important that I wanted to spend my life focusing on getting to the root of those things and helping people really face their truth. So I would say if you had to call me something right now, it's more like the purpose coach. Uh, I really come in to help uh, align with either the organization or the leader, the CEO's higher purpose and make sure that everything that they're doing is truly coming from a place of, of truth and that they've done the work to even know what that is, which, you know, is a whole other story. It's interesting because I wasn't too familiar with the way in which you describe it. I think yeah. when Jason and I have really spoken about what you do, it's through the lens of 
that more traditional understanding of crisis management, uh, risk management, and sort of strategy. Right. right. So it's interesting that you actually position yourself like that, which I think is really incredible and actually should really be at the center of all kind of firms, whether it's internally working with an external partner or within PR agencies. I think there's a real opportunity to have that kind of mindful thinking. Um, but it actually really is perfectly setting up what we're going to talk about today, mm. which is keeping on the theme of what's going on sort of culturally and then more kind of potently within fashion. Mm. We've been talking a lot about what's the path forward? Like, how are we going to move forward to make fashion better on a macro and on a micro level? And there's been a lot of rhetoric, mostly one-on-one conversations that I've been having with friends, Jason's been having with friends, Jason and I have been having together around reform versus revolution. You know, the idea Mm. of like, we need to just burn fashion down and rebuild it at a more egalitarian image versus slash or incremental change. Uh, every step forward is a great leap forward Mm -hmm. for for all of us. And so that's really what we're going to talk about through this lens of what are the risks, what are the pros, what are the cons, examples, and then just like ideologically and philosophically also talking about the merits of both so that we can have a conversation. I don't know that there's any one answer in this conversation, but just trying to figure out a viewpoint, I think, ultimately. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I will say, I think on this concept of, of revolution, uh, I think it's very tempting to assume that, you know, burning it all down overnight is the answer because we're tired. People are tired and it has, you know, these systems of uh, power and hierarchy and oppression have lasted for way too long. It's really tempting to say, you know what, it's about uh, really tearing it all down to the ground. And, and I don't disagree that things have to change. There has to be a paradigm shift. But I always say that, you know, this idea of revolution is a little bit of a trick in that the way that we've seen it um, in history is that we learn, you know, the French Revolution or the American Revolution just happened. And then all these people got together and they fought back and, and there was their freedom. But really, if you're a student of history, you understand that that was a trickle effect over centuries of time. And that even after the revolution, there was work to be done to piece it back together. Uh, and, and when that work isn't done in a solid way, you see those societies actually replicate the same form mm-hmm. of oppression again. So I think it's important yeah. for us to get very comfortable with incremental change um, because that is what actual transformation looks like. It is piece by piece, bit by bit. It is having the patience and the faith that this is all in service of something higher and that you're going to see every piece through so that it weaves and knits together beautifully in a way that cannot be untangled when crisis hits. And Maury, right now, the big conversation is surrounding social change. And surely what we're speaking about is that intersection of business and social change. Mm. In In many ways, you know, we come from this of like, okay, this is about, this is just about doing business. You know, this is profit-led. It is shareholders' uh, interest is, 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 leading, is leading the efforts here. It's not necessarily about, um, or it hasn't necessarily been, been about social change. I mean, that's a big leap, if you will, to come from a place where, let's be honest, there's, humanity is not always considered in that equation to going to a, a, a fully opposite space where it really requires a careful consideration of humanity as a way of going about business. 
Is that not in effect a form of um, a form of revolution, really? Absolutely. But again, I think it took time to get there. And I think that it's happening now. We're watching this democratization of power really have profound impact on those that are in power. And I think I'll never forget when I first uh, set out to do this on my own, I read this, this fact that just shocked me. And I thought, okay, this is the validation I needed. Thank you, universe. That um, MIT graduates they had interviewed and they had said that they were embarrassed to admit to their classmates that they had been get, given a job offer from Facebook. Now, five years huh. before that, that would have been the coveted job. You wanted to graduate and go and work at Facebook, right? But when I say democratization of power, what I mean is this incremental, your workforce has power. The people that you want to come and help um, build your business, build your brand, they have power. And when we are all being awakened to this need for social justice and social good and empathy and connection, when we look at business and it doesn't have that connection, then we want nothing to do with it. And that's just from the workforce standpoint. If you look at it from a customer standpoint, you know, customers are very awake to their purchase power and they're showing us exactly what they can do with that purchase power with the boycotts we've seen, um, you know, with deciding that they're going to just cancel a brand. uh, That is a real thing. And whether businesses right now are responding authentically or responding from survival mode is irrelevant. What's relevant is that we have their attention. And so now it's time to think about how to utilize that. I think that is very true. I really agree with you. And I'm going to sound like a broken record here. Um, it's my background in marketing. But when we talk about transparency or authenticity, particularly from a brand positioning media in the age of social media and just digital in general, we're all saying the same thing. And there is a general lack of transparency that allows you to make those decisions, let's say, as a customer, when we're all saying, you know, we're listening, we're learning, we're going to diversify our teams, like this is important. Yes, we've just awoken to the fact that there is systemic racism within fashion. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, one brand sounds the same as another brand, which sounds the same as another governing body, which sounds the same as another publication, which sounds the same as another influencer, because we're all saying the same thing. And the formula of how fashion performs is such that you're co-opting into something that is is inherently authentic, but we're all saying the same thing. So I think my concern is how are we really truly able to see what will not be revealed or what isn't being shown, you know? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. And I think that there is a lot of attention right now being paid to what brands are saying versus what they're doing. And I really think that we have to pay more attention to the actions. I think we can give a you know slight pat on the back for some of the statements. But I really think that when you see a brand do something that is authentic, you can feel it. When, and you know it. And we've got to start putting language around that feeling of, hmm, this feels real. And this mm-hmm. other action feels very surface. And I think that that's where the power is, is to call that out very calmly and consistently and to constantly be the accountability matrix for business to say, ah, we see what you're doing here and it doesn't feel authentic. And I think that's where business is going to have to learn and leaders are going to have to learn that they've got to start processing things cellularly. Jason has heard me say this before. 
and really make it a part of their truth so that when they take action, it's real and it's authentic to who they are. It's not going to look the same way. And I think that is also a clue is when everything starts to look the same, it's not real. The actions have to be authentic to the brand. Um, Maury, I want to talk about your your exact practice with these, let's say, the, the C-suite executives that that you may work with. Because yeah. I I can't help but to think, I love this talk of of transformation, of changing the, the corporate environment, of changing the work environment to be a lot more humane, a lot more compassionate, a, a lot more values-driven in a real way, not just in a performative way. Mm. But I think about the socialization of that very audience. I'm talking about those executives who um, went to boarding school with each other, where these systemic issues are formed at such an early age. There is such the factions that literally um, uh, you travel with through your life and ultimately help your ascendancy and you help you scratch each other's back along the way. How do you then take a, a CEO or a COO, whatever the title of this executive is, who is a 50-plus-year-old, a 40-plus-year-old, and you really try to have them understand the values of the, well, the, certainly the values of the organization, but the values that, um, that their audience are holding dear in this age. How do you actually get to the core of having them really understand that this is a new dawn, that the principles and the, the indoctrination that they came up under no longer applies, speaking mm-hmm. to that profit-led business, to that like um, you know shareholder-led business that was mm-hmm. so entrenched in our culture. Mm-hmm. How do you unleash them from that core understanding and have them feel that that is real and actionable and important? Yeah, I love this question so much. I was I have goosebumps trying to answer it. I, you know, I think that the really important thing for us to remember is. There is no connection without empathy, and there is no empathy without reconnecting to yourself. So my methodology, or the Mori method, as my team calls it, is when I go in and I'm talking to CEO, it is about their humanity. It's about understanding that however they grew up, whatever indoctrination they came under, they are humans with fear, and that fear is driving so much of the prison that they find themselves within. And that is a universal truth. And when we come from that truth, all of a sudden, they can see that I'm interacting with them with love and without judgment, regardless of you know what it's taken to get where they are. It's about seeing their humanity and reconnecting them to their higher self. So we really take time understanding what are your triggers? What are your traumas? What taught you that you had to come from this place of scarcity? What taught you that you had to be reactive? What taught you that you know you couldn't uh, reward good behavior and you had to reward the kind of old bad behavior, the culture of you know competition? What is it within you as a leader that needs those things? And we really start by breaking those things down first so that they can reconnect to their higher self. And when I say higher self, let me be clear. There is always a version of us that is coming from this space of purpose and universal love and higher good and connection. I believe that. And I think that when we don't act that way, we've just lost our connection. The frequency got lost. And so my job 
is to be the connector, is to say, let me reintroduce you to this person and let's always try and be in alignment with this person and understand what this person would do. And once we break that down, and that takes time, this is why I say transformation is not overnight. It's not about coming in and writing a statement and making the person look good. It's about really doing that work. And once Mm -hmm. that work is done, then we're able to say, okay, now let's try putting ourselves in other people's shoes, which is the development of empathy. And that then is the next stage. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. It absolutely does. It really does. I think one thing I'd love to pose in tandem with that and or in tandem with Jason's question, because I, I do understand what you're saying. One of the things I think is really interesting about what's happening now is that I think this fallout around, I guess, race and actually now it's kind of bleeding into the general idea of toxic work culture, right, in media, mm-hmm. within brands, is predominantly amongst women right? Mm. Female founders, female executives, uh, female editors, female CEOs. And I think that's what's kind of interesting because I think we've gotten into this like toxic positivity. I'm a superwoman. I'm efficient. I could get unicorn status. I could be a supermom while also running a super, you know, that like need for efficiency has kind of almost bulldozed you to move forward where you're not necessarily paying attention to mm-hmm. an intuition, right? Mm-hmm. It's like the thing, I, I, and it sounds really sexist, and that is obviously not my intention, but there is, I think, intuition here that is not really being honoured, right? Mm-hmm. So I wonder how what you're saying kind of maps against that because ultimately power is really intoxicating. Mm -hmm. So in that kind of, I'm going to be efficient, I'm going to market myself within this culture of kindness and empathy that doesn't really exist and it doesn't really matter. And you're kind of ignoring a lot of the things that we tend to pay attention to. Isn't that just feeding into the idea that ultimately it doesn't really matter who you are, whether you're an old white, old guard CEO or like this kind of new millennial female archetype, Isn't it really about power? And that's kind of the problem. So how do you reconcile the need for power and how intoxicating power is when you have it Mm. with exactly what you're saying? Because that's really the issue where these people at the top will not relinquish control to give anyone else equity or a seat at the table. Yeah. Uh, A couple of things there. I think to directly answer your question, if you were to survey 200 high power CEOs right now and really be able to access their humanity, they would tell you that what's most intoxicating is joy and peace of mind and fulfillment. And that is what is lacking. So I think that the breakdown to this need for power is to really understand, are you fulfilled by what you're doing? Do you have a sense of joy in it? And there is this tiny voice in the back of some of these leaders' heads that's telling them, I don't like this. I don't like this. And, and just getting rid of that voice is worth it. It's worth facing this this desire for power head on, number one. Number two, the idea of power is shifting. We are entering a new era. And as we enter this era, just like when we went out of the Great Depression and there was a whole new idea of business, we are going into what I call the era of connectedness. And power in this era where people need connection is going to look very different. So you're seeing a little bit of kind of this idea of traditional power is going to start to go extinct over time. 
because power is going to look different. It's going to look like, what is your capability to connect me to somebody else? What is your capability to bring us together? And if people don't understand that, they're, it's going to almost look like a dinosaur situation, right? And we don't see that right now from our vantage point, but we, we will see that later. My third point, though, about I want to specifically address this idea of you know, positivity at all costs. I agree with you. I think that is also uh, just as dangerous as some of the other things we're talking about. Because, you know, what that says to me is a true disconnect, yes, from your intuition, but from really being able to face the darkness and look into the fear. And, you know, there is absolutely no true light without dark. And if you can't accept that as a leader and you're going into things as everything is positive, everything is awesome, you know, rainbows and sunshine, that is also not authentic. And that is also going to be seen through. And I think that when you talk about, you know, if it's female founders who have been in this position, I think it has a lot to do with us as females being taught that is the only way you'll get our attention. We have to always be positive. We have to always make it look comfortable. We have to make it look like you want to come and listen to us. Like it's like sunshine. Um, and that's because we were taught that's the way to break in to a very male dominated society. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I think women have had to do that maybe to break in. But again, as we are entering this era and we're, we're talking about accountability and authenticity, I think that'll be the work for female leaders is to turn on their intuition and integrate the darkness with the light. And that's where they'll really be able to stand in their power. I well, love that so much. Maury, you know what? I can't help but thinking and speaking to you. I'm like, if I'm, if I um, represented one of those, you know, C-suite roles and I didn't have this kind of guidance, I didn't have this kind of authority to help me sort of weather those, those waters, to educate me, to have, you know, to download to me on this kind of self-awareness, mm. I don't know that the self-awareness would, would come to me as this, you know, as the CEO who has been indoctrinated in a mm -hmm. certain way. I don't know if that self-awareness would come and therefore, you know, to be followed by the compassion into, into action. Like this is hugely, this is a hugely daunting exercise. It's incredibly powerful from the way that you're delivering it to us. I'm mm -hmm. like, oh my gosh, like, can I, can, I please <laughs> sign, can I please sign up? But I'm just thinking about those were really not equipped to go through this exercise without the assistance of someone of, of an authority like yourself. I find mm -hmm. this to be incredible, incredible hard work. And also just to, and also just to lay on top of that, uh, again, not to be a stickler, but it doesn't also immediately sound like it translates to money, which I think is mm -hmm. really the root of all of this, right? It's like make money, honey. And that's kind of where we got to this mm -hmm. idea that it's profits at all cost. I think I read something and I'll let you carry on something from you that said, values are the new bottom line. Yes. <laughs> Tell us what that means. Go ahead. Yeah, it's true. You know what, um, Henrietta, that's spot on. It does not immediately translate to money. What it does is it um, very near in the future expound that money and that success in ways you didn't even expect. And you've just got to be ready for that ride so you can get to that amplification. I love this example of Satya Nadala, who's the CEO of Microsoft. He came in and he really focused on the culture of that organization. And he really saw a need to reconnect those leaders and, and the people within Microsoft and to connect them to their humanity and their heart. And when he talks about it, he talks about the soul of Microsoft, 
which I love because that's language I use that I, you know, people used to think was crazy, right? And now you have the CEO talking about this. And when he came in, the revenue of Microsoft went down because he focused so much on fixing that, on healing the soul of the organization. And now, many, many years later, it didn't take very long. After two years of revenue going down, it went up above anything it had ever been before. Because then all of a sudden, there was a connected workforce that was happy and joyous and fulfilled to be there. And their productivity was unlike anything Microsoft had seen before. Would you say that is a good strategy? Because I I think that's an amazing example. Um, One of the things is that Microsoft is a 30 plus year old company um, and has been, you know, a multi-billion dollar business. Do you think that that same strategy can apply to a much more, let's say, digitally native company or media company that thrives on that immediacy, that fast pace, that need to keep investors happy, where there are huge implications and consequences to a dip per quarter, or mm-hmm. you know, particularly with COVID, where the bottom's fallen out, you know, to fall even deeper because we're focusing on things that a traditional CEO might think is soft, shall we say, mm-hmm. or not Absolutely. tangible, or emotional, or not, or yes. not necessary right now. You know. Yes. Uh, I think that an organization like that is going to make the change even faster. I think when you look at, to your point, a 30-year company like Microsoft, it's like turning a behemoth. So yes, yes, that does take time. If you're a digitally native uh, organization that's agile and nimble and innovative, you can do this much faster, number one. Number two, I always tell people, it's not an either or. Again, that's a scarcity mindset. You can do both of these things at the same time. You can really work, especially start at the top work with the CEO and make sure there's that alignment with truth and purpose while the organization still does the things they need to do to succeed. But what you see is that trickle effect goes down and then the amplification of their work to then their senior leaders and their teams is like, you know, rings that wave outward. And so that can happen simultaneously. And then you start to see the numbers go up in ways you didn't expect. You don't always have to expect a dip. I think you see dips with these organizations that have just been doing the same thing the wrong way for decades. And so, yes, to unstick all of that takes some time, but it's so worth it because what you see on the other end is, one, you're future-proof, you're ready for the era of connectedness, and two, you have this fulfilled group of people doing this purpose work that cannot be replaced. That's the, the, again, the productivity that comes out of finding joy from your work and purpose from your work is, you know, irreplaceable. And Maury, are you finding that your clients are approaching this prophylactically or they're approaching this when they are in a time of crisis and the chaos is overwhelming and uh, fixes need to take place? Or do they recognize the waters may be calm now, but they recognize that this is the future of business. This is the trajectory that we're on. And this is the kind of work that needs to be done at this time. Is that kind of forethought and foresight rather there? uh, And they're acting on that with, with you? I think that as I am working very hard with my team to raise awareness about this, we're seeing more asks coming in that have to do specifically with the purpose coaching work proactively. 
But when there was an absence, I think to your point, what you're what you're trying to wrap your head around is what I'm describing is a bit of a unicorn. And I bet you there are others like me somewhere, but we haven't found them, right? So I am kind of the first of this kind that you're seeing. And so to let people know, to like recognize you, if you've never seen a zebra before, you have to describe it first. <laughs> We've really had to really help people understand what this even is because it doesn't exist. It's a new category. It's a new powerful tool to put in your arsenal. Uh, so to answer your question, up, you know, historically, it has been through the lens of chaos or crisis. It has been, oh my God, fix her, come fix this. What they get though is not what they expect. They don't get the, okay, we're going to come fix this. It's like, okay, we're going to do this deep work. Are you ready? I've been really lucky that uh, all of my clients have been ready. Um, and I really think, again, I believe, I believe in energy and I believe you magnetize things to you that are ready for you and vice versa. So I think that that has to do with just elevating my own frequency. And I say this to people all the time when I'm coaching them, when you can elevate your frequency, mm-hmm. people can see you more clearly who are also coming from that frequency. And so I've been lucky to find that, but it has been, uh, Jason, to answer your question through the lens of, oh, we have a problem. Slowly, as we're as we're educating the public or the leadership, we're starting to see. Uh, wait a minute, what is that um, from a more proactive standpoint? So, to the point of revolution versus reform, you know, recently, just in the last couple of weeks alone, we've seen a number of heads roll. Essentially, that as she wasn't what I was going to say. I was going to say heads of businesses exit. Um, but to the point of revolution, I thought heads roll might work better. <laughs> um, do, you, do you think that, so to me, that was a form of revolution, like excavate what's not working and rebuild. To what you're describing as a strategy, which really is a business strategy, which mm. is, I think, everything you're discussing that feels very ideological, it should be baked into business. Do you think it's premature? Or a cop-out? Like, do you think that actually a lot of these leaders should should have stayed or should stay and just do the work? Do you think that everyone's capable of making the changes that you're describing that's needed in order to foster the spirit and the energy and the business that will make them successful and, and future-proof? Mm-hmm. Or do you actually would you actually go into a business and be like, mm, you need to go? So two questions I'm hearing there. Do I think that everyone is capable of this work? Absolutely, unequivocally, yes. Do I think that people leaving um, is a cop-out? I think that sometimes the environment you find yourself in is not the right environment for meeting your higher self. And I think that when that is the case, the only right thing to do is to let it go um, and to move to higher ground. So I think that, you know, I've said this a lot when we do purpose coaching with CEOs. It's like, hey, sometimes when you really start to see your higher purpose, it might not be here. And that's okay. And when you understand that, when you understand that and you can let it go, you've released the entire organization. You're letting everybody move to higher ground. Because if you're here and you're not living your higher purpose, you're holding everybody back. So there are times where when this work is really done, now I don't know about people who are leaving right now, right? It might be to save face. It might be because it's the easier thing to do. But I think that when you're really doing the work internally to align with your truth, um, and then you realize, oh, no, 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 my purpose is around helping people particularly in this other way, uh, then you should go. So it depends on the motivation, but I don't always think staying 
means uh, that you're doing the right thing. I think letting things go is is the harder work and, and sometimes the better work for everybody. Yes, that's so true. That's sometimes maybe even where the problem arises because you don't even realize that you're doing work or you're in a space that you just aren't supposed to be in. You yeah. just think you're supposed to be there. Right. That's interesting. Well, Henrietta, you know, I want to bring this, I want to bring this conversation to our last episode, um, speaking about Black trauma. And in many ways, I feel that this is almost, uh, we're dealing with, Black trauma dealt with, like, say, the employees, if you will. And, mm-hmm. and this conversation is dealing with the employers. You know, we spoke about the wound that, as Black people, we walk around with, the, the shrinking in that we have to do on a daily just to occupy a space and not to not to appear threatening and not to appear criminal. But I'm looking now at the behavior from the from the employers and how they are to think about that black trauma. I mean, we're talking about that deep work. We're talking about that greater sensitivity and understanding of the makeup of your staff, of the makeup of your company and so forth. Like this kind of work I find to be, or this kind of understanding I think is hugely important. But how would these executives really go about understanding this the psyche of say the you know they're black employees that are walking around wounded and in many mm-hmm. ways black people don't even know how to articulate that for themselves they don't necessarily even know that they're walking in trauma but yet they need to be healed is mm. this asking too much is this asking too much of that equation but if we're talking about healing we're talking about healing in all facets of healing in the workplace if that's if that's where the this conversation is Mm-hmm. Is it asking too much to, you know, to do some of that cellular work on the other side of the equation? Absolutely not. And I think it's contagious. I will tell you that right now, what I say is if you are not able to do the work or not in a place where you're in, you know, in the midst of doing the work and you're a leader, your job is just to shut up and listen. You can do that, right? Just stop talking and listen. And I know that that's not empathy, but it is mimicking empathy. And that's, if that's the best you can do, let's just start there. Um, when you do this work though, as a leader and you get to a place of breaking down your own resistance to other, right? It's this Mm -hmm. othering of people that we do. That's so painful. It's this pushing away of people that we do that causes so much pain. And so when you can understand your resistance to that integration and your resistance to that connection, and you start to break those walls down, you know, empathy peeks through like little, you know, sunshine coming through cracks. And when you are able to do that as a leader, that's when the listening turns to feeling, right? Experiencing. Mm -hmm. That's what empathy is. It's like, I can hear you, but if I can actually hear you and then feel you with all of my cells and, and truly understand, oh my God, I really feel what that would feel like. That's empathy. And that is a process, yes. But right now, we don't have that time. And right now, there is trauma. And that trauma has to be held and listened to. And so as leaders right now, we just need to create environments where we're showing that we're listening. And by the way, we are showing that we expect the other leaders in the organization to do the same. And that we are showing that when that doesn't happen, there's repercussions for that, right? That you really, we're creating an environment where we're listening. And then as we do this work, that listening turns to, oh, actually, I can feel you now. And when I feel you, I want to take action. You can't stop me. If I can feel it in my heart, then I will do something about it that is meaningful. 
Maury, just to underscore that, because you have mentioned this connected, this connectedness so much. I want to just underscore that as that is the connectedness that you're speaking about. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Okay, okay, okay. okay. I wanted yes. to make sure that that was... Uh, yes, thank you for connected. clarifying. Yes. I absolutely couldn't agree more um, because one of the things that I've been speaking a lot about in terms of Black trauma, but also about this idea of diversifying the ranks. You know, that was a relatively immediate response from all companies that kind of proactively, but also when they have been called out for not being diverse. Um, And one of my concerns with that is, well, what environment are Mm -hmm. people of colour and Black people specifically going to be walking into? Mm -hmm. Because if it is an environment that traditionally hasn't been set up for people of colour and Black people, hence why they're not actually there, could they be walking into toxic environments that end up compounding Black trauma, building Black trauma, that ends up just making the entire thing worse. And that's what I was talking about, intention and rhetoric. You know, we're listening, we're learning, let's diversify, let's get a diversity officer, let's go through the motions to make this work. Mm -hmm. We're not really thinking about the unintended consequences of how we're actually potentially making the situation worse because we have an influx of, as you described, the other mm-hmm. coming into a situation that isn't primed or set up for anyone's success. So true. Do you see what I mean? And I think that's the complicated, convoluted work. That is my my concern with fashion because yes. it's very much based on optics. It's very much based on swift strategies to change the narrative. And we're not really thinking about like, what are the unintended consequences? What are the actual implications? Particularly when we talk about black trauma. I mean, I'm not sure how many CEOs, CMOs, the heads of HRs are even aware that that's such a, a pandemic, really. Yes. And there are training resources out there. So if at this point you haven't tried to become aware, then shame on you, honestly, because there are resources that are really trying to help create this awareness. But I will tell you this, I could not agree with you more. I do not think that just going out and hiring people is going to solve this. You have to build an environment where they can flourish. And I am by no means you know, a theorist on Black trauma or on integration of diversity into culture. But I will tell you, you know, a model that came to me once that I just kind of drew was a triangle. Um, and it was about when you're bringing in diversity into your organization, particularly right now, as you're focusing on bringing in Black talent and really upholding them, there is a, a, a model that, that's come to me that's, you know, first it's about awareness, then it's about access, then it's about integration, and then it's about empowerment. And what I mean by that is you need to be aware that, you know, that you're lacking in that area. You need to then provide access to opportunities. You then need to make sure that the environment is one that creates integration, where everyone is able to make decisions together, where hierarchy is really addressed in a way that is powerful and that decision-making is really collaborative. And then you need to empower, you need to empower people to lead. And unless you're ready to do all four of those stages, then just hiring someone is not going to solve anything. And to your point, Henrietta, it might even create environments where trauma continues. So you really have to think along that spectrum and be prepared to address each stage of it so that you're actually building, you know, this inclusive environment that everyone talks about. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that makes me think about is that this sounds very time consuming. Yeah. And part of the 
shift that is different this time. You know, we, we've been in similar race situations like the whitewashing of the 90s, the idea of inclusion and diversity on the catwalks and, and public facing. This time feels different, mostly because it's obviously um, juxtaposed against what's happening in culture with police brutality, etc. But it's also this idea of just being exhausted, like we're, we're done waiting. Right. We want it now. Right. So you talk about revolution being a trick or, you know, <laughs> untrue. We talk about all of these layered and complicated strategies that really start from the top, deal with a lot of kind of complex and ideological, psychological, emotional challenges. Mm -hmm. It sounds very time consuming, mm -hmm. but we're tired and we don't want to wait and we want change now. And we live in a digital age where that change is demanded so how are we reconciling the two? What is the advice for the people that want change immediately, but the idea that change is going to take what it sounds like a really long time? Mm -hmm. You know, I think that we have to, when I say embrace the darkness, be tired and be sad and be angry. Be in that state right now and understand that there's value in that state. That is a moment that will move into another moment. That is, that is kind of weaved together for a reason. I think the next stage from there is truly starting with self. How am I upholding my own boundaries? How am I clear on what my boundaries are so that I don't have to continue to feel um, hurt as I'm interacting with others? How do I make very clear what interacting with me looks like now that I've had this level of awareness? And I always say, if every single person became really aligned with self and with their own boundaries, we would start to interact with each other differently. So then now you're making microscopic change. And I know that doesn't feel like enough and it doesn't feel fast, but actually it's profound because what you're doing is you're teaching other people how to interact with you in a way that is now acceptable. As we do that and we really stand in our power then that power is unshakable. That is when institutions really are like, okay, we have to change. And that is, yes, you have to accept it's going to take time, but you have to start with just accepting where you're at and being okay with what it feels like. It's hard and it's exhausting and that is okay. Just sit in that for a moment and then start with yourself. What are the boundaries I'm going to uphold that are going to create microscopic change that if every single person does, all of a sudden now you have billions of people interacting differently. And that is change. Now, Maury, Maury, what is your, what's your forecast? You said that you are, you know, essentially a unicorn in, in this type of work, in this kind of transformative uh, values-based uh, work. What's your forecast on your sector, on the fashion industry, adopting these principles and developing more really uh, values-based companies in a very hard-coded way, that this is, is, this is the principles that their business are erected on. This is not just a, a strategy that's being implemented, you know, to, to, to shore up business. So what's the forecast on, uh, on that from you? You know, that's going to depend on all of you that are within the industry calling attention to whatever malignancy exists there systematically and repeatedly and really making sure that the industry understands that the old way of doing things no longer works. And I think that when that organic movement happens from inside of an industry, just like the example I gave you about MIT graduates not wanting to work at Facebook, then all of a sudden you have the attention of the leadership. 
And then the forecast for someone like me looks great because then it's like, wait a minute, we need help. We need help at a deep intrinsic level because people are not just accepting this for the way it is anymore. They're not doing things just to have access to my power or to have access in general, which is fashion, entertainment, trade on that, right? They trade on this. The access that you have is what makes you valuable. If people start to call that out and understand that that's not value, value looks like something very different. Value looks like humanity and change and impact. And you start to really move in that way and speak that truth. Then you get the attention of the people who can come to a unicorn like me and get the help that they need to really intrinsically make a change. And then when stats that, you know, the two-thirds of millennials and younger and the younger generation um, are essentially uh, buying, purchasing on the values of a company and the principles that a company stands for, uh, that's a huge, that's really significant. That's a significant number that, you know, these young people need their values aligned to their purchases. That's huge. So uh, Absolutely. That's, that's the forecast well, I think for now we all will. Business. I'm sorry, Henry, did I say that? I think now the temperature is such that we all will start doing that, I think. I agree. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Maury, there is so much more that we can discuss with you on this, and I, I hope that we will do so in the future. This has been incredibly informative um, for me, and thank you so much for this information. And I love that businesses are positioning themselves like this now in this transformative way to respond to the climate, and not even just to respond to the climate, just to do better caring human business. Yeah. <laughs> wow, what a concept. You know, <laughs> you know, actually, I failed I to mention this. I failed to mention this because this has always stuck with me. When people utter this phrase like, well, it's just business. And I've always had this problem with like, how can you separate humanity from business? There are people right. involved. <laughs> there are people involved. And that has always been used as an excuse um, for doing whether it's brutal business or, you know, uh, things that are not concerned for the people. And I've always had a problem with that phrase. So I, I mean, on that yeah. note, I just put that out there. Not to necessarily have a response, but just to put that out there. But thank you so uh, much for your, your time today, Maury. I have loved the conversation. I love talking to both of you. Thank you for having me on. And I look forward to continuing the discussion. Thank you so, so, so much. It's been so brilliant talking to you. Thank you. Thanks, Maury. Be well. Out. You too. Bye-bye. Huh? It's my time for something.